Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online, and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Right, Aaron Lee, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. No worries. Um, so I got in contact with you through some mutuals and Obviously, you've got an incredible story, which I'd love to get into. Um, I guess just to get to know you a little more before we go into the heart stuff, what was your life like before all of the the journey you've been on? Yeah, um, so uh, so going back, I was, I was 27 when I got unwell, but we can, we can get into that. Um, so before that, yeah, um, I've yeah, grown up in Perth, um, close family, a lot of, lot of close family around Perth, um, and... Uh, Grew up, went went to Sacred Heart College. Um, from there, I got into um, cycling as a sport at a quite a young age. So I played junior footy, you know, early on, um, and for some you know knee troubles and growing pains and stuff. I turned to cycling, um, and Dad got me into that when, when I was about twelve, thirteen. Um, we just started riding and joined a local bike club, um, and then that's through my high school years. I did a lot of cycling um, as my my hobby and sport. Um, and then, yeah, um, graduated and went to uni straight after school and, um, I'd studied, um, civil engineering. So I've completed my degree, um, over five years after school and then pretty much straight into work after that. So, and I've been working, um, so I work as in local government. So I'm, I'm an engineer in local government. So that's kind of where I've come from, from school. Um, and th- throughout that whole time I've, I've been riding my bike, you know, I've raced, um, locally a couple of little national events as a junior and things like that um and then yeah met my wife in high school as well so she's been there through the whole journey so we've been together for 14 years um so got a lot of close family on her side as well um and then yeah we got married in 2018 um and then you know tra- traveled the world did honeymoon did Kentucky as well so did, did all got a lot of traveling in um before we had our son uh, oliver um and he's now three so, um, but yeah, my journey kind of starts before we had Oliver. So it was quite, um, yeah, quite a lot to, to get through after we had him. But yeah, that's sort of where I've come from. And I've always been a very active, healthy, fit, fit guy. Um, you know, hit uni, finished uni, did a bit of travel, 
you know, having a few drinks, friends going out, exploring the nightlife and the world. Um, but I was still active through that as well. Um, and yeah, that's pretty much where I come from. <laughs> when you hear about heart issues, it's often associated with older people, poorer diets, but you were in quite good condition before this heart thing. So I want to know, I guess, the specifics of this heart stuff and how that all came about. Yeah, um, so I, uh, or firstly, um, late in 2020, I just, I came down with a, with a cold, you know, um, a seeming, seemingly, um, I was diagnosed with a pneumonia, I was thought to have pneumonia, um, and so that was, oh, okay, well, I'm sick from pneumonia, I'm, I'm, I'm young, I'll just, um, yeah, I'll just, I'll get over it and, and get better with anti- antibiotics and things like that, um, and then yeah, I had no, no inkling or no history, cardiac wise in me at all in my family, um, just nothing of the sort. Um, so it never ever came to mind that I could have a heart issue. So um, few cu- couple of um, four week periods, a couple of rounds of antibiotics. It's like mm, it's a bit weird. I'm not getting better. You know, a few repeat visits back to the GP, and um, one day I was just a bit. I said, you know what, something doesn't feel right. So I went back to a different GP that I'd seen through my childhood because I'd moved house. Um, and I went back there. I was like, let's get a second opinion. You know, I'd asked for a chest x-ray because I was still, you know, coughing and antibiotics weren't doing anything. Um, and then, yeah, I, I went for an x-ray. And this was um, at the time my wife was pregnant, um, heavily pregnant. Um, we were June, yeah, early January of 2021. Um, and this was like, late 2020, you know, November, December. Um, and yeah, we, um, one morning I just got up, I'd had a, a referral for an x-ray. Um, I'd put it off for weeks and weeks going, oh yeah, I'll get to it. Yeah. It's probably nothing. Um, and then yeah, one morning woke up, she's like, have you ever done that x-ray that you, you went for it to get done? I said, oh no, I'll just, it was a Saturday morning. I literally just like, oh, I'll, I'll just go pop, pop down the road and do it. So I went and got the x-ray, um, thought nothing of it. And then, yeah, Monday morning when I got to work, I got a call from my GP, which was weird because I didn't make an appointment or a follow-up or anything. Um, and, yeah, uh, basically straight away my GP said, look, you need to go to ED. Um, the x-ray is abnormal. Um, to, your heart looks enlarged. So it was enlarged on the x-ray. Um, she said, basically, I've called ahead. They're waiting for you. So go home, get your things, um, and just, yeah, go, go to the emergency. Um, and from there it just went just unraveled um so from there we kind of just were like oh okay not really sure what was going on um so I went in with my wife he- she was heavily pregnant um and yeah just waited in there they told me my sitting heart rate was like nearly 200 which was quite bad so they rushed me in. I didn't I felt fine I felt completely fine the whole time which was really weird um and then yeah that rigmarole of tests and ultrasounds and things and then um when they brought the cardiologist in I was like oh okay here we go um and then yeah shortly after that it was yeah they a lot of tests trying to figure out what was going on I knew my heart was enlarged they told me that that needs to be looked at um and then yeah that afternoon um the, yeah I had, I had to bring in a senior cardiologist and just sit me down with with my wife and you know she's heavily pregnant um like last three, four weeks of pregnancy and um, yeah, just the hard news that you've got severe heart failure. So that was, yeah, real smack in the face to go, 
what do you mean? I'm, I'm young. I don't know how that's possible. You know, I've never had heart problems. Why me? So, and it was scary because it's like I'm seeing my unborn child, you know, with my wife. And it's, yeah. So that was a real, real tough, tough moment to swallow. Was that the hardest thing that it was so unexpected and almost, like you said, why me? It's like you haven't really done anything wrong. It's not like it's mm. a heart condition from 40 years of lifestyle abuse. It's come out of nowhere sort of thing. Yeah, that's that's it. And it was it was just, yeah, like, what the hell? Like, I don't, yeah, I couldn't really comprehend. I kind of, as soon as you hear that news and you kind of just go into, you know, fight or flight mode, you know. Um, I think with me it was kind of, I was very numb to it. Like, this isn't real. Like, I'll, I'll get better. Um, and at that point, I didn't know I needed to have a heart transplant at all. So it was heart failure. So more or less what was happening to my heart was it was enlarged because I'd taken on fluid, the body's defense mechanism. To, um, my heart's not pumping properly, so the muscle's impaired. Didn't, um, it, didn't I read somewhere that it was only pumping about 10%? its capacity yeah so they, they the initial test that they run is uh, they do an echocardiogram um so that it's an ultrasound of the heart and they can see the function and um look at the efficiency of how much blood comes in to how much it, it needs to pump out to the rest of your body um for a normal human being it's anywhere between 50 to 60 percent efficiency in someone who's fully healthy um mine was it, it, it's an estimation when it's that low um but it was straight away in the severe so they explain, you know, there's severe, mild, moderate heart failure. Um, moderate, you can sort of, people have recovered from with time and medication and rehab. Um, and, but severe is like really, really bad. So mine was about 15% or lower. That They couldn't, you know, they don't come up with this precise number, but it was really struggling. So my heart wasn't able to pump blood around my body. So that's why I was, you know, I was bloated. My organs, my heart was... Enlarge, and I'd started to take on fluid in the lungs. That's like how it kind of progresses. So your body kind of drowns itself mm. as a defense mechanism, um, and then it makes the heart work harder, and you know, so on and so forth. It just gets worse. I'm sure you're desperate for answers. What What were they mm. telling you at the time? Um, it was so straight away when I was diagnosed. I went from uh, Junelop Hospital to Fiona Stanley because they transferred me really quickly because that's where the um, the states. Um, cardiac transplant and heart failure clinic is so that's a specialist clinic um i was referred straight to there and put straight under their care so they um work with patients to um medicate you for heart failure to get get try to give your heart some relief and and bounce back a little bit um so i was on a lot of medications um straight away to kind of give my heart some relief so it can pump a bit i was on um, pills that i had to get fluid out so i just going to the toilet all the time, just trying to get the fluid out of my body to give the heart relief and get my body relief. Um, and then I couldn't even drink more than one and a half liters of liquid a day. So you think that's it's pretty good, but it's not a lot when it includes like everything. So milk, ice cream, water, everything. So I had to live like that for about, yeah, two months. Um, and at, at the same time as part of that, I had to wear a, a wearable defibrillator vest. Um, and that was in case of arrhythmia. So commonly with heart failure, if it gets wet, as it progresses, you can develop arrhythmia um, and and issues like that. So I had to wear that as well. So it's full on. Was it was the condition getting worse? Um, so I at the time I didn't really know. I was very 
you know, optimistic and hopeful and positive. I'm, I'm, I'm that kind of person. I try to switch my mindset to just get on with it. If I get through this, if I do this, if I do what I'm told, straight away, I was, whatever the doctor says, I'm doing it. And I, I, I should get better. I have to, right? I'm young and, you know, I didn't really under, fully understand. I think I was in um, that just fight mode. Denial? Like, Were you in denial? I probably was because um, it, it, it was probably oh, about three months and I got to that point where um, – so I also ha- – I was visiting the ca- a cardiac rehab gym three times a week at the hospital. So I, was, I basically lived at the hospital you know, three, four times a week I was there. Um, and it just got to a point where exercise got harder. I was also tired. You know, I slept 15 hours a day because um, that's the common the common symptom is tiredness and, you know, intolerance to exercise. Um, and then I think it became more apparent how bad it was, you know, when I was right before I got told that the next step of treatment was considering transplant. Um, I remember being called in to for a review after um, feeling really tired and I couldn't even get through like five minutes on the on the treadmill walking very slowly um it only really dawned on me when they sat me down and then um my consulting cardiologist pulled in one of the senior cardiologists and then I was like oh I think then it kind of dawned on me that this is really bad but before that I was I was in denial going I'll get better I can just just do what I've got to do and it'll be all right so how did that change how you felt about the situation? Were you, did, were you thinking about dying at all? Um, when I had heart failure early on, no, I, I did never cross my mind. Um, when I was first told I had severe heart failure, it, you know, the, the 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 doctor explained that look, it's it's not it's bad, um, and it, you know it's uh, not ev- not everybody survives it. Um, so this was early on, and then but once I was brought into the, the specialist team at Fiona Stanley. Like they're, a, they're a whole team um, of consulting cardiologists and they're, the way they work with their patients and me specifically really kind of didn't make me panic. It was, you know, that they, they never really talked much about that, you know, this is really bad. It's like, you know, this is what we're going to do next. Um, so I think the way they treated me as a patient and all their patients, that really made it easier for me looking back. Like that was they were amazing in breaking that news to me. It wasn't straight away. Oh, you've come to the heart failure clinic. You'll probably need a transplant. Mm. That that never happened. Um, so yeah, it was a lot of, you know, hope that something could, you know, I could turn a corner. And how did your family react to the news? Um, oh yeah, absolutely shocking. Um, I, I should probably dial back a bit as well. I didn't really talk about my son's birth as well in the midst of it all. Yeah. Um, so that was. That was probably the hardest part of it all. Um, so when I got told I had heart failure, um, this is at Christmas too, um, week before Christmas, I, um, and he was born on Christmas Day. <laughs> so that you know that's really special in itself. But he was early, um, not not dangerously early, couple couple weeks, um, and I was in I was actually in hospital at the time when he was born, um, and. So, and this is when I didn't know I needed a transplant. So everyone was, it was kind of new. No one really, I didn't really know what was, what was next. It was, you know, five days after. Um, so, and my mum moved heaven and earth 
talking with the medical team. Um, they got me out of hospital for my son's birth, so I didn't miss that. Um, so that was my first thought was I don't want to miss that. Um, and then as I got sicker, um, I think it just kind of started to dawn on me that if I don't um, make it, I won't see my son. So early on, I didn't really think that far. But as soon as I was told I needed a transplant, which was about a couple months after of treatment and tests and things like that, the, the first thing was just the fear of my son not having a father and, and knowing him. Um, and I think that was also the biggest shock to the family as well is that it's terrible for me and, you know, I'm their loved one, but I, you know, may not even get a shot with my own family. So that was the, the biggest, uh, was a lot of sadness and, and grief and like what's uncertainty, you know. Um, and my wife, yeah, she, we were only married. We've only married three years at that point. Um, we've been together for, since we were 14. Um, the impact is just, um, I don't really have a lot of it front of mind because I was kind of just on autopilot, like just coping basically. So, What's the heart transplant process like? It seems like there's a lot of uncertainty and that seems like it's the hardest thing. Um, yeah, so it's a, it's a bit of a journey. So um, with, with heart failure, there's obviously levels of intervention of treatment um, and they, they um, treatment kind of progresses as you get worse. Um, heart transplant obviously is the, the final option, the last straw. Um, and there are other options that they basically work with patients to get you to transplant. So at that point of heart failure, it's yes, can you recover? But also getting you strong enough and keeping your body going until they can list you for a transplant, get the transplant. Um, and for some patients, they get really sick. So I was quite sick. Um, the, the actual, so I was listed for transplant about three months after I was diagnosed. Um, and that was a whole process in itself. Um, so first was, yeah, they broke the news and said, look, I need a transplant. Um, explain, you know, this is the steps, steps of where you're at. Um, there was an intermediate step of having a, uh, called a, it's called a VAD. So it's a, um, ventricular assisted device. I think I got that right, but it basically it's open heart surgery. They connect it up to your heart, uh, and it pumps the heart mechanically for you mm. to, um, give you the quality of life um, and also to help you get to transplant. Um, I was so sick that that wasn't going to work. I actually needed two. So your heart's left and right ventricle. I needed one on both. So I needed two pumps fitted to my heart. You have to wear two handbag things like permanently. Um, but I was, and that and that's very rare to have two, two VADs they call them. So bivad. Um, and I was very sick. So it was very unlikely. I may not have even survived the surgery. To, to have that and then after you get that you have to wait to recover and then be relisted for transplant so I was um fortunate isn't really the word but I declined so quickly that um my next step was hospital admission until I waited for my heart transplant so I probably was at home waiting for my transplant for five weeks could you what could you do then could um uh, not a lot um I I couldn't I had to be careful walking from my bed to the fridge. I uh, couldn't, couldn't go outside, couldn't do any physical activity. Um, I'd just go to the cardiac gym and it'd be supervised. So I'd have wires all, all wired up to me, defibrillator vest on with settings. It, it, it would go off. Um, it, it never went off. 
So I was very lucky. I didn't have arrhythmia. Um, and what's I, going through your head at that point? I, I kind of shut it a lot of that time out. Um, once I was told I needed a transplant, it's not, there's, I mean, my wife, her reminds me, there's not a lot to remember because you weren't doing a lot. It was just get up, spend some time with my son. Um, he, was, he was a baby. Um, and that was all I was really able to do is just sit with him. But that spending a lot of time not doing much can mm. in that situation could be so hard because you're just stuck with your thoughts. Yeah, definitely. Um, and at that time I was waiting for, I was waiting for a transplant as well. So there's, there's the weight that you've got that on your mind as well. Not, not only I'm really sick uh, and it's really bad and it's getting, it could get worse or it's getting worse, but also how long do I have to wait before I either die or get a transplant? That's, that's where I was at. It was wait to die or wait to get a transplant. Um, so that was, yeah, I kind of just, I'm kind of just processing it more now, to be honest. Um, you know, I'm three years out. Um, but it's, it wasn't a sense of dread though. I was never like, I'm going to die. This is it. Cause I had a lot to fight for. I think that having my son was both a blessing, um, and, and a, you know, a difficult time cause he was uh, a distraction, you know, the only, the only human being around me who didn't know what was going on. So I kind of think I just latched onto that saying, spending time with my son to shut it all out. Because the kid, they don't understand death mm. or what you're going through, mm. you know, because I feel like when you're around other people, like they know what you're going through and it's just, it's almost hard to be the same with you while you're going through that journey. But when you get to spend time with your kid, not only are you cherishing the special time, but because he doesn't know what you're going through, it's almost like you can have that distraction and it's not about the heart and it doesn't have to be. Yeah, yeah that was it. And maybe, you know, subconsciously in the back of my mind, it was like, I don't know how much time I got with him. So I'll use that to distract me. Um, and just distraction was the game, waiting and being sick. You know, um, I couldn't do a lot. So I played a lot of PlayStation. You know, um, I had, had a, a good buddy of mine over East who we, we played online Call of Duty. So... I'm doing nothing else, so I did a lot of that. You know, gaming is a bit of a release to forget about stuff. My son and just being at home. Um, but yeah, like I said, I never really dreaded like thinking I'm going to die. You know, I never, me and my wife never even had a conversation about what if you do die. What we didn't even talk about that at all because mm. it was constantly me. It was it was fight, fight, fight till till I can't go anymore. So there's always, I always kept hope in myself. And then I think that's one of the things that spurred me through was like, just, it's hard to be positive, but try and think positively. Um, I was thinking very negatively. There was some very trying moments and a lot of tears and sadness. Um, but I think that's the driving force. I've been a very driven person. So it's like, if I do this, I've given it all I can. Um, and whatever happens, happens. When you, what was the next step? You went to the hospital and you're waiting for a call? Yeah, so I, I waited for the call. Um, I was at home, and the last week before I got the, the, got the phone call that they'd found a match for me, um, I, um, I'd i been to the cardiac gym late that week. Um, I went to the gym it was on a, on a Thursday, and I didn't cope well with the workout. Like, they stopped me. I, I, could, I, I stopped myself. I was like, I can't, I can't move. I can't do anything. I've got no energy. My blood pressure was 60, 70 over 60. Put it that way. That it, I, and I somehow was standing. So a lot of older patients, they don't, they can't cope with that. But I was young. Um, but I was really not good. So I went into the hospital um, the next day like from the gym to just sit down and get checked out. And 
I didn't faint or anything like that. I just was really sluggish and tired and run down. Um, and they said, look, go home. We, we're going to have to admit you to, to keep waiting. Um, and they, they, there were some medications they can give you called inotropes that they threw an IV in hospital to basically to keep me going. It helps your heart pump better, but it, it actually makes your heart worse, makes it worse, but it's keeping you alive at that point. So that was the point I was at. Come into hospital, we're going to keep you alive. We'll try to keep you alive as far as we can. Um, so I, w- I went home um, that afternoon feeling, well, I'm going into hospital to die here. That, I remember that I'll, I'm going to hospital to die um, unless I get a transplant. Um, and then that's when uh, – <laughs> it's nothing short of a miracle – um, I, I shit you not, the, the next morning they phoned me, 6am, after being, going to bed thinking I'm going to hospital to die, the next morning, 6am, oh, Aaron, we found your heart straight away the next day. Um, and that's, I, I can't explain that, that. It was a really weird feeling and it, a very amazing thing, you know, got the call, the gift and, and that waiting. I only waited for five weeks uh, and that's very short, you know, the average wait time is six to nine months. Um, but I was very sick um, and on the list, the tr- transplant list isn't like a, it's not a queue, it's a, it's a priority list. It's yeah. how sick are you and how, how much can they manage you until you get transplant and obviously the things have got to match and things like that. Um, but that feeling of that call the next morning, immediately I was shaking straight away, like, like unexpectedly because it happened so quick. I wasn't really, I wasn't really ready for it. Mm. Um, so, and that's kind of when, you know, I turned the corner, um, wasn't out of the woods, but it was like, I think it was a bit of a relief too. Like there's a way out. There's, there's a treatment. I've made it, but you know, immediately I think the shaking, the shock was like, shit, I'm going to have open heart surgery today. Fuck. <laughs> um, that was probably more the shock. Cause I was very nervous before the surgery. That was another thing that played on my mind waiting is I knew the surgery I had to, you know, see the anesthetist, get all the paperwork, sign all the waivers and things like that. It was, there was a fear in parallel to waiting, the fear of not waking up from the surgery. That was another thing that I really struggled with. Um, so I think, but once I got the call, the kind of fear of the surgery melted away. It was like, I've, I'm, I'm doing this. This is it. I kind of just didn't have a choice. Lifeline. Yeah. Yeah. So after you got the news, mm. surgery was on the same day? Yeah, so it's the same day. Um, so I was, yeah. Called into hospital that morning, um, admitted, and yeah, just basically just waited around until till it, it was ready. Uh, obviously, you know, there was a donor, um, and there was that immediate thought of you know someone someone has just died, as well to give me this life, um, and that that was the first thing, kind of like that while I was waiting for hospital, I really reflected on that. Said, look, this is I'm so lucky. I've, this has been before the transplant. But I'm I'm here. Someone else has passed away. And I'm getting another shot. Um, so, yeah, was just waiting for that, for things to be ready, logistics and things like that. I uh, probably waited for about quite a while, actually. So about six to eight hours. Because, um, yeah, I, I don't know anything about my donor or, or anything. I just know the matches and the blood type, you know, all the medical stuff. Um, I don't know anything about the person. Um, but I was just knowing that, yeah, some, someone's family has switched off their life support today, you know. So I was grateful, but also um, realistic that 
you know, there's another side to this story that I'll never be a part of. Well, I am a part of it. But yeah. um, so I think that was also like what's just let all the worry about the surgery melt away. It's like, well, they're going through that. I can go through this. And the fear of not waking up from the surgery. I'm pretty sure everyone fears that anyways, you know. You hear stories, and you know, horror stories or things on TV shows or whatever. I think that's more just the fear of surgery itself, you know. Um, what was the wait, like six to eight hours? Did that feel longer than that? Yeah, it felt like a whole day. So I remember we drove into the hospital. It was, it was peak hour southbound. So I was in the car, like, shaking the whole drive there, um, trying to stay calm and relaxed. Um, and then it was a, it was a long wait. Um, we, they were, and this was at the height of COVID as well. So it was, you know, the hospitals were hard to have family come and visit. And I, I was lucky Perth was in a point of um, most things were kind of going as normal, few restrictions. Um, but we had, yeah, my mum, my, my, my dad, my wife, my son sitting, and my mother and father-in-law sitting in the room with me just waiting. Um, and same thing again, the whole room we focused on my son, everybody. It was just me and him. Yuck. on the bed with me playing cuddling um that's what we really dr- switched on to passing the time um just little things like chucking the radio on just trying to just not think about it and as it got closer you know obviously got a bit more nervous and a bit more um there was an element of sadness because i was still scared of the surgery like what's going to come out on the other side how am i going to be um because there was uh, there's obviously risks with surgery you know there was risks of um, some patients come out with kidney failure temporarily, so they're on dialysis. Um, sometimes they do the surgery, can take out the old the, the your old heart and connect the donor heart. Um, sometimes it doesn't doesn't start beating straight away. You know, there's all that stuff. They have to mm. explain that to me. I know that. So those were the fears as well. How would I come out? Um, but yeah, just being with my son was really well past the time. Um, but the hardest bit was going into the surgery. I was very adamant from the minute we, uh, even beforehand, I was like, I want my son and my wife to be the last two people I see on this earth if it doesn't go right. So that's that's what happened. They wheeled me in and they followed me all the way up to the theatre door. And that was because I said, that's the last thing I want to see. If it doesn't go right, I want to see that. Um, and I, I remember that. That was special. And I was, I was on anti-anxiety me- medication a little bit closer to the surgery just to calm me down a bit so I didn't freak out um or get overly emotional because obviously that keep my heart rate stable as well they didn't want to want me to you know get go into shock or anything like that because I just couldn't handle it um and yeah it was just see them at the last thing or wake up and see them again that was that was literally all it was do you remember the first moment when you woke up um I was heavily sedated so not not specifically but I do the first memory that comes to mind is um with i was in icu for they take you straight to icu you're on ventilators like support and everything just and then they take out the breathing tubes um was being able to breathe was the first thing i remember because i obviously had fluid on the lungs you know i had a cough the whole time um the straight away um i could breathe clearly um i could I had colour in my, my fingers and hands. Like my hands were grey because like, there was not enough blood supply. You know, you pinch the skin and blood came back. You know, that's that's what I remember. It was just feeling like a weight gone. Like I can breathe. I'm okay. Um, 
obviously amongst all the saunas so you know having your chest cracked and everything like that yeah. um but that yeah that was that was really it um and then yeah it was it was happened it? really quick basically as you can kind of kind of tell it was a three month period diagnosis heart failure need a heart transplant heart transplant in, in three months what was the what was the next course of action meant to be in terms of recovery? What were you told? Yeah, so uh, on recovery, I was you know told a few things beforehand what they do. Uh, I was on my feet in two days. They they like to get you moving, not much. You know, I was on a walking frame <laughs> with two physios and wires, and um, I've actually got a video of that. And um, the the team actually took a picture of me. I've got it printed at home in the bed with all the ventilator, all the stuff hooked up to me. Um, just yeah, I, I asked for it. I, I keep that. I'll pull it out sometimes and go, that's where I came from. But I was, I was up in 48 hours with the physios just on my feet. Um, and it was just straight away. It was about straight back to more cardiac rehab, but, but on the recovery side, um, because they want to get your new heart going. You know, it was very strict on monitoring and I had to get medications right. So um, after transplant, you need immune suppression straight away. Um, for life. Um, so I was on steroids, high doses of immune suppression. So I was very, very vulnerable to being sick while I was in the hospital. I, I still am vulnerable today, but what they do is immune suppression is high at the start because they need to make sure your body's not going to attack the new heart. Um, and then over time, where I'm at now, it's kind of stable and just take pills twice a day to keep it, keep it consistent. Um, so there was a lot of that going on, a lot of learning, a lot of learning medication, I had so many pills to take, like even supplements and blood tests daily. And so it was a lot distracting me actually after transplant. I didn't really get a chance for it to sink in or I did, but it was very much go, 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 go. We've got a, I had to get biopsies as well. So within days they take you back in, it's under local. So you're awake, they go down through your artery in your neck and they take an actual sample of the heart and they test that for rejection. So I had to do that every every few days for a couple of, for about a week and then every week every fortnight every three months every six months so every and then at two years is when they stop doing that just to make sure that they're getting the medications right you don't have rejection um so yeah it was full on um but my first success was straight in the cardiac gym that's where i kind of found my place i was like well i i, I made it now what do i do it's i get stronger that's all, I, that's all I've got to do is get stronger and not just for my own fitness, but I've, I've got this chance with my son. I can see him grow up now. So I need to be healthy. I need to be fit. I need to be able to do that. So, How long did it take to get back into riding? Um, so I spent, I think it was 12 weeks until I was cleared to actually ride like surgically outside. Um, I probably rode on a stationary bike at home, maybe like, six to eight weeks after. Um, they have the hand cycles in the gym at the hospital, so I was keen to get on one of those. As soon as they let me, I was like, get me on a hand cycle, something. Um, and, yeah, it was 12 weeks exactly. Like the day they said it's all good, I was out on the bike with Dad um, very slowly, of course. Um, couldn't manage much. But I before that, I'd spent three times a week in the gym doing everything that the exercise physios worked with me on. Um, I may have pushed them a bit because I was quite driven, you know, and they had to slow me down a bit because 
um, after transplant, you, you do feel amazing. Like the impact is apparent from day one. Um, and also I, I was on prednisolone steroids, like quite a hard dose coming down. So you feel, you feel a million bucks on steroids. Um, but that were to, for the, for immune suppression basically. Um, so yeah, there was a lot of, um, a lot of positive energy even at the cardiac gym because they all, my, my whole clinic and clinical staff, they all saw me at my worst I think it was just as rewarding for them to see the outcome as it was for me. Probably more rewarding for them, actually. I was just kind of going with it because um, they, they work with a lot of patients. And um, being so young and active, I think it was quite extraordinary for me to you know, bounce back so quick. Um, put it this way, I was out of hospital eight days after my transplant. Some patients get stuck in there for months. Yeah. Yeah. What does it feel like to have a piece of yourself removed and then someone else's heart? yeah it's quite a um it's a hard one um because you know now it's and i was told it's my heart now it was somebody else's um because i mean i know how sick i was and even after surgery i asked some questions like what was my old heart like when you took it out hey i'm ryan reynolds recently i asked mint mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation they said yes and then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I don't show you pictures and stuff. Um, um, I remember my cardiologist saying that this is exactly said it was fucked. <laughs> like, you know, this is after a real good, we're out of really good speaking terms. He's a great, great guy. And yeah, it was, it was like, it was like a sack of potatoes, mate. There was no life in that heart. You were on your last legs. Even the surgeon after he said, if we weren't giving you a heart transplant today, we would have been trying to give you that, that bivad pump, even though it was risky and rare. It was, if they didn't find a heart, they probably would have had to just try it. See if it got me there. Did they tell you, because obviously it's anonymous, all this stuff, but with a new heart, is there any information about the condition of that heart? Um, they, so, yeah, they do obviously do a lot of they, – they, they, they test the, the, the donor organ, make sure there's no, like, um, issues that they haven't foreseen um, and that it's healthy. Um, they do immunology matches, you know, for known diseases and stuff that can transfer across um, and blood type and stuff like that. Uh, but no, I don't know much at all. Um, um, I just know it was possibly someone my rough age, or not age, sorry, rough body mass, and that's about it. So you're not given any sort of indication of timeline future with it because of the heart? Um, you mean my timeline now or that I've had it? for? Do they give you sort of any, because of your heart condition, are you back to relatively normal or is there still sort of um, lasting scars from it? 
No, so now, like, my the, the, the match was incredible. Like, they were, like, my cardiologist was, like, elated, like, when Arthur was saying, we've got you a, a, a great match. Not everything matches. You can never match everything because no two people are the same. Um, but it's, like, a five-point match system. I think I had three out of five, which is considered really good. Um, one of them is obviously blood type. That's the main one. Blood type's, like, the one that you have to match um, and other things like that. So, um Right now, like my, my my new heart is completely healthy. I've got no issues. Um, they've they obviously I have annual tests. They check for you know any any coronary artery diseases um, and things like that. And there are long term side effects that they do see in patients because um, so I am at higher risk of some um, coronary artery diseases um, purely because of you know the grafts and the and the the connections of your arteries and stuff, they can narrow in over time. And um, so that's why they keep keep an eye on me now every every year and I'm on medication to help with that. And so the life from now is not without risk, um, but there's no telling how long, I've, how long it's, you know, how much more life it's given me. Um, there are recipients out there who've had it for over 20 years and they're still going strong. So, and I'm very optimistic about that because I've had a very good run. Um, not all patients get that, and I'm always amazed by other patients and their experiences because my experience was hell to me, but then I hear other people who had worse issues and things, and it's just like, wow, I'm not the only one, and everything's different for everyone. Are you able to live now without any fear around it? Like, you're obviously back into cycling quite intensely, so you're able to push your body without fear about doing any damage? Yeah, it took me a, like a while to get that kind of confidence. Um, there's a lot of, you know, exercise anxiety with early on, like probably over the first 12 months. Um, I was very much guided by the cardiac rehab um, team at Fiona Stanley. Um, but then kind of just felt my way through. I managed to find it. I found a, a coach who was really helpful um, in that, just after that first year to kind of work with me and understand and um listen to me like fatigue was a real factor um I, I wasn't confident to get my heart rate up it was we gradually over time got more confidence and tried things and obviously always talking to my my team if something was like oh is this okay um but yeah so that first after that first year kind of my confidence started to build like once I knew I could do do an interval tr- session for example started off not pushing myself too hard Doing that over time and over time and getting confidence was kind of what got me to where I am now. But now I I have no fear about what I can do cycling. Um, I can push myself. I know what my max heart rate is. Um, my max heart after transplant, your max heart rate is lower. You you can't your body can't push to that VO two max that it might have been able to before. Um, and that's the real only drawback of exercise is. My nervous system's a bit different with my heart rate and how it responds. So that's the biggest thing I had to learn to exercise with and live with. So basically um, when they when you have a heart transplant, they need to sever your vag- vagus nerve from your heart, which is the connection to your brain basically. Um, there is two nervous systems. I, I, I don't know all the technical ner- names, but one of them is it's, it's severed. Um, and what that means is my heart rate doesn't respond instantaneously like your average person. Um, it also means my rest heart is a little bit higher because it's also the nervous system that makes your rest heart rate go 
really low. Um, but I've, I've taken a long time to learn that. Um, and it also means that when I take off up a hill, my heart rate's actually delayed in how it increases. So that was the biggest thing to learn and have confidence in. Um, and the same with recovery. So that was a real big learning curve. And I still am getting used to it today. Yeah. What do you think has been the biggest shift in your mindset from before, you know, you had a job, you had a family, you had a life, and then this unexpected thing happens. You go through this incredible journey in the space of three months. You come out the other end. Do you have any noticeable differences in how you see life? Um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm more, I'm, I'm certainly more appreciative of the little things around me. I think the biggest thing that I've learned um, is the importance of family, just being around people who, who you know, um, genuinely care and they're always there to support you and I've you know I've, I've met many new people and new friends as well afterwards um, but I think it's the importance of family and surrounding yourself with people who who will be there when shit hits the fan you know um, and I've had a huge support network uh, obviously um, I've been involved in cycling as, as a sport around WA and there's people who know of me or know me from that um, and to see me come riding again was I had so much support in that space um, I think that was the biggest thing I learned was just be around people who um, support you and just and they and they go out of their way to try and understand. You know, no one can truly understand because it's they haven't lived it. Um, but yeah, everyone I'm, I'm close friends with or acquainted with are kind of on the same page. You know, they know um, what I've been through and they're very supportive of anything I can achieve now. Is, yeah, I, I I blow people away. Like, there's no doubt about that. I've got people who tell me all the time, I, I can't believe how you can do this. Um, I can't believe it myself as well. So it's really and, – and, and I, I do cherish every moment with my son and my family now. Um, every little like little thing. I know we all cherish our children and the first child. It's amazing. Um, but I have a – I feel like I have a different appreciation. I have both, but also that how lucky am I? Like, this almost didn't happen. Um, and sometimes it can, you know, be a bit, uh, I get some anxiety around that. This, you know, this didn't happen. This nearly didn't happen and get mm. down about it. But I kind of pull myself out of that and say, no, you're here because of the transplant. You know, and, and, and I commonly find myself thanking my donor for things that I'm able to do. Um, I've done it. I've done a couple of like races and events and I don't know why, but I've, I always, I always thank my donor up in the sky. I remember I finish an event and like a race. It's like, it's because of because of him, um, and my own determination as well. But it wouldn't happen without my donor. So that's a, a, a constant appreciation, um, and then that's I mean that's the most special thing about it. You know, a stranger saved my life um, and allowed me to have this wonderful network of family and friends. Do you almost look back at what you went through, and you wouldn't wish anything on anyone but sometimes when people go through the hardest things in life and they come out of it it gives them what you have this greater appreciation for life I often notice a lot of people going through life are so caught up in the trivial things and the the shallow nature of the world but I mean you said you're quite positive before but it's giving this deeper sense of love and appreciation for the small things and it's almost like because people don't get to, to have these experiences, they don't get to fully understand what life is truly about. 
So do you look back at your at what everything that's happened and not wish for it to be different? Um, yeah, like like you said, I, w- I wouldn't wish that experience on anyone or anything minutely close to my experience. Um, but it, yeah, like it's hard to compare life before and after because it's so different now. Uh, there's a lot of similarities, of course, um, but I think it's yeah, it's just. So I sometimes can't find words for it, you know. Um, I've I've learned a lot about um, I've learned a lot about mental health uh, around it because um, beforehand I I actually never really considered my mental health as a, as a priority. To be honest, you know, I was I was doing quite well and didn't really have much to drag me down beforehand. Um, but yeah, not not everybody obviously has the experience that I have, but. I just, uh, what I like to get out of life now as well is to tell people that it's okay to have the shittest time in the world, um, but you just need to, it's a, it's just, you just need to try and draw on the experiences of others to try and just help you to get through. Um, I think talking to people is the biggest thing I've learnt from from it all after whereas before I didn't really worry about it like I didn't really I didn't really understand anxiety because I didn't really feel like I had it um yeah so do you feel like having gone through this it almost is like this real big conversation starter I feel like the reason we can't have deep meaningful conversations and we focus on the shallow side of things is because it's just people don't know how to do it but when they know of you and they know your experience, do people feel comfortable to talk about it? And it does, does it sort of set the tone for a meaningful conversation? Um, yeah, like it certainly does. Um, I, I've, I've learned that the most in um, getting in, co- being in contact and meeting other recipients or other patients who are waiting for transplant. Um, that's quite a unique circumstance, but um like in my cycling, there's a there's a growing transplant community in cycling, and and um, and through social media and connections, you know, I've met some wonderful people, and and um, you know, I've met I've met some guys and 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 another other heaps of re- recipients, um, and sharing my story with them, and they might be newer after their transplant, that has really helped them to kind of feel like it's okay, like there is hope, there is something on the other side. Um, either if you've just had a transplant or you're waiting for a transplant. Um, I think that's what I try and do is use my experience to help others to open up and talk about it rather than bring themselves down. You know, it's, it's a very depressing time having to wait for an organ transplant or, or t- uh, cancer or anything. I find a lot of similarities. Um, and I'm not, I'm by no means like a motivational speaker or an expert, or I just I just like to share and hope that anything I can share can help someone even a little bit. Do you feel like before versus now, it has allowed you to be more open with your emotions and your mental health? Yeah, it it certainly has. You know, I'm able to recognise um, my 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 triggers for anxiety. Obviously, a lot of trauma driven. Um, triggers as you can as you can appreciate um i've really learned a lot about myself as a person and how i respond to situations um 
and and it's all really come from opening up and just talking to people um and i'm and i'm i'm not one to be shy about saying i see i see a psychologist regularly because i need to and then i'm and i'm at that point where i'm open enough to say yes i need i need to talk to someone um, and also the same on the other side is when oh, I'm, I'm good i don't need to talk to anybody i'm i'm managing fine on my own so that's what i've, I've learned heaps about myself in that space when you're going through this in the waiting period, did you speak to anyone who had gone through it? Similar experience? Yeah, I did. I did actually. So um, I, I actually, um, um, well, my mum, my mum encouraged me, but I was on the fence. But I ended up asking my clinical team, "Say, hey, look, are there other people I can talk to who've been through this?" Um, and yeah, straight away that isn't hesitate. So I was like, "Yeah, we'll, we'll we'll ask some of our previous patients if they'd like to." Um, and then yeah, I did. I did connect with a recipient. Um, and his name is Jason. He about five years post transplant, and that was really helpful for me to get over a lot of the fear of what life could be after. Like I had one vision of how life could be, but after speaking to someone who'd been through it, it completely changed my perspective on what I what it could be like after. Um, and this was when I was sick, so I, I met I met with him when I was sick and waiting, um, and it really helped me kind of put it into perspective that yeah it's it's really crappy now but i just got to keep going and there is there is hope and that's what it gave me is hope to see someone living and breathing and walking around and enjoying enjoying life um and that's i've found a lot of a lot of um benefit from sharing the same experience with other recipients who are waiting on or new recipients um you know i've got um some some now friends that I, i i hope i've given them some form of um, inspiration or just drive to go, oh, well, if he can do that, why can't I? Does it inspire you now to get the most out of life? Yeah, it, it's it's one of those things where I'm, I'm a very – I love my sport and I love to improve. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a habitual need-to-improve-all-the-time kind of, kind of guy. Um, and ever since my transplant, that's all I've been doing is – what's the next high, what's the next um, kind of achievement. Um, it doesn't even have to be big. I just want to just get better and, and it's all with the drive to stay healthy. Um, yeah, it's... So what races are you... So you got back into racing now to take us through that. Yeah, so I got back into racing probably, um, probably about two years after my transplant, um, just while I felt confident enough. Um, and we're talking, you know, just local amateur, like graded racing, you know, starting in, in, in just um, lower divisions. Um, so they usually race with D, B, so D, C, B, A grade kind of racing. Um, and because I wanted, I, I never, I didn't want to do that at first. I was like, I just want to ride and be healthy and get fit. And then I, as I got fitter and, and things became more possible, it just opened doors and these were op- doors opening to things that I used to do that I, I didn't think I would ever get there. Even just after transplant, I was like, I'll be happy to be fit and healthy now. Um, so as, as time went on, yeah, I've got more confidence and I found that pushes me along um, as well as uh, to you know, encourage other, other recipients to stay healthy like me because it's very important after transplant. It's important for, for any, anybody and, and for mental health as well. Um, so I got into racing and then the World Transplant Games was actually held in, in Perth uh, last year in 2023. And 
I, I heard about that about a oh, year after my transplant that it was going to be in Perth and straight away I was like, oh my God, that's amazing. So straight away that was my focus. Um, so we did that in April last year and that was an amazing experience, not just for the competition, but I got the thousands of recipients from all over the world um, and doing sport in a, in a cohort like that of people that just get it you know, recipients and their carers and loved ones. Um, that was really, really positive to go, well, life's pretty normal now, isn't it? Seeing all these other normal people who've been doing it for years or whatever. Um, and then, yes, yeah, so I rode in that in the cycling and and, and I ended up being um, a world champion in um, my time trial event. So, and I was like, I, I was blown away by that. You know, it's such a small percentage of, of people and, and I made it there. I couldn't, yeah, it was, so that was kind of the, the peak of like, yeah, I can do this. You told me that this whole experience sort of, you got to discover who you were. Are you proud of that person? Yeah, I, I am. Um, obviously, you know, I'm still, no one's perfect. You know, you've always got things to work through and I've, I've still got things to work through from my, my, my journey. Um, but yeah, I, I'm, I'm proud to be um, someone who's driven um, and active and, always been a friendly kind of person i love to meet new people and hear their experiences um but most of all I, i'm i'm proud to be a person that's fought hard and i really hope like my son is three now i really hope when he gets old enough to really understand that that he's proud of me because i've you know i've i've fought to be with him and, and my family um and that's what i really strive for so my son can grow up as well with me as as a role model um, as you know, all, all dads would like to see that. Um, I would like to think. Um, so yeah, I'm very proud of, about being an, an inspirational person to others and, and a dad. Um, and that's that's what it all boils down to. You know, the main driving factor and thing I wanted out of it all was I remember saying this. Um, probably tears involved, but I just want to be a dad, like a normal dad. Um, and now I'm finally at that point where I can be a normal dad, and I'm. I'm I'm absolutely stoked. So, yeah, I'm definitely proud of who I am. I don't know if I asked it before, but are you back to work at all? Yep, so I work full-time. I'm back to work full-time. I took about a year off um, and slowly made a transition back. So um, I'm I'm, I'm office-based work, so I, I work from home a little bit. So my, my workplace has been very flexible and, and really, really wonderful supporting me, and they still do, you know. Um, so I've got a really good work-life balance now as well, I think. Um, probably more than I had before because I just know like work isn't the be all and end all of our existence. And that's one thing that kind of switched my focus. I appreciate work and I, I enjoy my work. Um, but if I didn't enjoy my work, I'd probably be a lot quicker to go, you know what, I'm going to do something else because yeah, work's not everything. It's work-life balance. And I think it also helped me tilt my balance more towards what I want to do and with my family and, works a thing to enjoy but a means to an end it's not something you need to really bog yourself down with you know has it has this experience changed your lifestyle factors at all in terms of being healthier in any way in terms of sleep eating alcohol the whole array of things yeah it certainly has obviously um i had a lot of work with a lot of like dietitians, um, social workers, psychologists, like through my transplant journey, 
um, a lot of education and information because it's really important for me to stay healthy now. I am healthy, um, but it's more because I've got this gift as well. I've got to look after it, and that means looking after myself. Um, so my diet, you know, I don't – I'm not on, like, a strict diet or anything. I eat um, holistically. I eat well. Um, I still I still go and um, treat myself. But, I, you know, things have changed. Like I, don't, I don't eat fast food. You know, I have a little cheeky grilled burger, and that's about it. I'll eat a pub meal, but not – I just have a balanced diet, um, and I'm, I'm conscious of – what I eat, you know, I know when oh, I'm overindulging here. I know that that's the biggest thing I've I've kind of done is I know how to, you know, get back on the bandwagon and keep eating nutritional nutritional balanced diet. Um, and of course, being immune suppressed um, for life is also a strong consideration. You know, I've, I get sick, can get sick very easily, um, and it can last for a long time. So, a simple cold can last me three weeks. Um, and there's a threshold there. My hospital care threshold's a lot lower. Mm. Um, so I'm, I'm always mindful of staying healthy and fit as well to help me when I do get sick. Because my immune system works. It's there. But it's probably about 25% of the normal person in terms of how it can fight off of an illness or a virus. Um, so those, it's not a huge lifestyle change. I, I kind of set saw it as a reminder to eat a you know, a heart healthy diet. Um, but it doesn't have to be super strict or super regimented. You just got to think about what you're eating and balance it out. Just going back a bit earlier into the mindset thing where you spoke about, you said, why me? And like, I feel like a lot of us in this world take the victim mindset for often a lot trivial more trivial things than heart failure and having to have a heart transplant besides being a positive person was there any advice or perspective shifts that you can give people to inspire them to get out of those victim mentalities because i think a lot of people go through things but it ends up defining them and it instead of you know getting themselves out of that situation and and being motivated to do something with that and gaining strength from that, they'll often live their lives in that mentality. Yeah. I mean, yeah, look, of, of course, yeah, anyone would, any illness you go, or oh, why me? This isn't fair, but um, I've shifted that focus um, now to, to, well, why me? And I have said, I have asked myself the question, well, maybe it was, is meant to be. I've had other around, others around me say, maybe this is what you were meant to do. And I think that's, Focusing on, yeah, if there is something that negatively impacts your life um, and you might initially play play the victim because, you know, that uh, in some ways that's human nature. It's like, I didn't deserve this. Why? Um, but once you get past that, it's kind of trying to focus on, well, this is the situation I'm in now. Um, it's letting go of control, I think, is the hardest bit because when I got that diagnosis and it's not in my control. And I think that's the, the, the main driver as to why we, we, we sometimes go, oh, this isn't fair, it shouldn't happen to me. It's because we lose control of where we want to be. Um, so I think, yeah, the biggest one of the biggest things I can probably encourage is just to try and let go of control and see where it takes you, even if it is you find yourself in a quite a net bad situation. Um, you've just got to make 
you know, make whatever you can out of it um, and surrounding yourself with others who shared that experience or um, can help you in that experience is is probably the best advice I can give. Do you feel like a much stronger person now? Um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely a lot more resilient for sure. Um, I'll, and I'd say I'm, I am a lot stronger because also I didn't really touch on, but I don't know how long my heart was failing for. It could have been a slow decline of years. It wasn't a birth defect or anything like that. That's ruled out, but it could have been years. Um, and it was just really bad when they caught it. So I, thinking about, I'm actually the strongest physically wise. I, I've, I think I've felt since year, year 11 at high school, if I'm honest. Um, so physically, yeah, I feel, I feel amazing. Um, and I think, yeah, resilience is really what I've developed uh, and, and a passion for sharing what I've done to help other people, really. Do you think the whole experience would have went differently if you didn't have the sort of mindset that you had? It, it certainly it certainly could have. Um, you know, not everybody's the same. Not everybody's as driven and... and forward focused um i kind of latch onto a focus and that's my focus and i um, i hyper focus on it at times um yeah had i been a lot more say reclusive person or or kind of kept kept things tight close to my chest and didn't really outwardly express emotions as much as i do um i think i yeah i'd it would be really hard to kind of pull yourself out of that rut if you didn't didn't take on other people's support or advice or whatever, I think it would be very, very different for me. Um, I may have just had my transplant and, you know, may not be as driven to stay fit, but um, also understanding that people who go through transplant, not everyone wants the same thing on the other side, you know. Um, some people want to just maybe even later in life, they might just want to be able to be mobile and healthy and, you know, do, do what they do. Um, so, yeah, I think it would have been very different if I wasn't a very outspoken person with my emotions what are your goals now in the next chapter um so really from now so I, 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 as i was saying to you earlier i've i've just come back from ballarat so i was able to race in the australian road nationals as a paratransplant recipient so the second time i've done that um so that was my goal recently um my next goal is really just to do do that again next year um and just obviously for my own personal benefit to get fitter and feel stronger, but also to have that experience with other recipients because it was really special sharing that with other people who want to do sport at the level I've returned to. There's a lot of camaraderie in that. And I think that's my next goals is really just being a part of that and enjoying it. Um, And fitness wise, I'm always looking to get fitter, fitter and fitter. Um, My next goal is, is a future world transplant games. Um, but again, those are the sorts of things that drive me to keep going. Um, but more so to, to share experiences with other people like me. Um, but also, um, to work on my fitness as a way to encourage anybody to go, it's, it's, you can do it if you really put your mind to it. When do you think you'll be able to talk about this experience with your son? Um, yeah, like I very much want to, um, you know, 
it's probably probably won't be really a, a conversation for him to truly understand until he's you know in his early teens or whatever, um, or maybe you know as he gets a little bit older. Um, he he is aware. He's certainly aware that I'm different. Different, if that's the word. Um, so he knows I've got a special heart, and we try and tell him. We don't tell him scary stuff. We just tell him, you know, Daddy's got a special heart. He knows that I get sick easily. He knows I take medication. So we try and involve him in that because it's his life too. Growing up, you know, he's always going to grow up around me, being careful of my health and medication and things like that. So, but I think yeah, the time. <laughs> You know, I always think of it this way. It'd be a great story to tell him on his 18th birthday, you know, <laughs> to, yeah, because it, it's, um, he will probably, I'm, I'm, I'm envisaging that at the time, you know, he'll probably, he'll probably turn around and say, Dad, I know somehow. I just get that feeling that he, he'll know, um, a, a, not the whole, whole thing, but he's like, yeah, I, I know uh, over time mm. what it must have been like. And then I can, you know, T- tell him more about it when he's ready to hear it. And that will be what it'll be. It'll be when he's ready for me to tell him at all. Um, that's, and, and that's, I really look forward to that day because that means I'm, I've been here for a long time. Um, and that's what, what the whole purpose of me pushing on has been for and to, and to, you know, be with my wife and um, who knows, maybe our family will get bigger one day. I don't know yet. Um, so yeah, that, that'll be a really special time when I get to do that. Yeah. Is there anything else on this journey that we haven't sort of gone into? Um, I think yeah, I've, I've dived pretty deep into into the, into things. Um, it's yeah, it's been a it's been a roller coaster. Um, it's it's not over yet. You know, this is my new journey. It's my new life. Um, my my life before transplant's still there, um, but now I kind of take it as a an opportunity to live a new life. I'm the same person, but my perspective's changed heaps. Um, and I'm just, you know, I'm just so fortunate to be here. Um, and I do want to try and give back, you know, I'm not, um, you know, I, I do, I do like to do some, a lot of work, um, promoting donate life and awareness when I can. Um, but I think my, the, the thing I enjoy most is using my, my exercise and my my return to sport and that journey to kind of um, just keeps you know showing people that it's all right. You can just you can push on and do what you want to do uh, on the other side and 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 helping people who have been in the same situation as me is you know that's a huge passion of mine um, and I just I just love um, yeah, sharing my experience with with other people to kind of have some sort of impact because, you know, I've got to be here for a longer time for some reason. I've got to give back um, to the world, um, not just to do with organ and um, tissue donation, it just for me as well. I've got a lot more to to do in my life and um, just being – I just want to be there just through all life's milestones and ups and downs. So, Yeah. Well, thank you for coming here and sharing your story. I really, I really appreciate it and definitely – Lots to learn. Um, whoever listens to this, I'm sure whether it's someone close to you or someone who doesn't know you, there's definitely something to take away. Um, and I'm, I'm looking forward to listening back to this and reflecting on it. And, yeah, I really appreciate coming in here. Yeah, no, thanks heaps for having me, mate. It's been, um, yeah, uh, really, really nice to share my story and, um, you know, hopefully, you know, 
provoke some thoughts and conversations amongst listeners and um, as and how powerful like organ transplantation can be. Um, it's not just for old people, you yeah. know. It, it's for it's for any anybody who needs it, you know. Um, but it's just I find myself in a unique position where there's not as many people in my age group, um, and just yeah, to shed a light on that. It's it's could be anyone and it could be anyone you know that yeah. may need that that life saving journey. Would you encourage people to get a heart check because there was a big thing going recently with Jackson Warren and the sort of Shane Warren Legacy Foundation, would, would you encourage people to pursue that? Yeah, certainly. Um, you know, go, go for your annual check and, and if um, if um, you, you're not not sure, um, always ask for a second opinion or just, um, yeah, I would I would go, go to your GP annually and just get them to do just a simple thing like a blood pressure and an ECG. It takes five minutes. Um that's all it could mean between you knowing something wrong with your heart early and doing nothing about it or, you know, ending up at the wrong end of the stick and and it coming out of nowhere. Mm. Um, so, yeah, certainly. And even my family now, they get annual heart checkups, like, um, more so um, because of my experience. But, yeah, just pay attention to your health is, is more the, is the message there. Um, like, I started off thinking I had pneumonia and I kind of was like, it's not right, so I questioned it if it's not right go and pry a little bit harder yeah well thank you aaron i really appreciate it and um yeah i'm sure there's so much to get out of this so thank you yep cool thanks mate planning for your next trip elevate your travel style with quince quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway like european linen premium luggage options buttery soft italian leather bags and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.